Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. Oh, you scared me. It's you. I've been sitting here in my studio jumping at the remotest noise because Bonnie and I have just finished watching the first couple of episodes of Stranger Things. This is this Netflix phenomenon that's gone viral. Everybody's talking about it on the social media, and I thought, okay, well, we'll sit down and watch this. And we've got hooked on this thing now after two episodes of Stranger Things on the old Netflix. Good to have the choice, isn't it, to watch these things audio described, because TV has become a lot more visual than it used to. I suppose it's just a natural evolution of the medium. And initially, when all those old-time radio shows migrated to television, like Dragnet and that sort of stuff, not that I was around then, you understand, not that I was around, but it was kind of perceived as radio with pictures, and there was a lot of narration, and you could turn your back if you were a sighted person on the TV screen, and you could still follow what was going on. You try as a blind person or as somebody who's turned their back on the TV maybe to make dinner or make a snack or something and make sense of a TV series like Stranger Things and you'd be really stuck. So it's great to have it audio described on the jolly old Netflix and it sounds really good too. It sounds good on the Sonos and the whole 5.1 surround sound. Anyway, I will stop thinking about Stranger Things for long enough to say welcome to the blind side. While well, speaking of Stranger Things, it doesn't get much stranger than this because we're going to be talking about politics and job seeking in a very difficult market today. A little bit later, I'll be speaking with renowned BBC journalist Gary O'Donoghue. He's in Washington at the moment covering American politics for the BBC. He's a voice that is heard and a face that is seen on BBC radio and TV on a very regular basis. And I've known Gary for years. We catch up from time to time. It's going to be great to catch up with him on the blind side and talk about how he got to where he is, some of the challenges that he faces, and what does he think is going to happen with this remarkable election season that continues to play out in the United States. Just a bit of a program note before we get into things, though. We are going to be releasing an episode of The Blind Side a little bit earlier than we normally do. Normally, I get around to doing these podcasts towards the end of the week, maybe on a Saturday my time when it's uh, the weekend and i got a bit of time free. Next week, we are going to be releasing an episode of The Blind Side on the day of the Apple event. So that will be the 7th of September in the US, the 8th of September in New Zealand, Wednesday or Thursday, depending on where you are. We're going to be doing a comprehensive wrap of the Apple event. And to join me for that, I'm going to be talking with David Woodbridge from Australia, Vision Australia. He is, of course, a prolific podcaster on technology in general, but particularly on Apple stuff. And there are many people who've learned about their phones and their Macs and their watches and their Apple TVs, thanks to all the work that David has done. So David, being a dedicated monitor of these things, is going to be up for the start of the Apple event, which where he is in Australia begins at 3 a.m. Yes, 3 a.m. He's going to be up for that and he'll be taking notes. And it's 5 a.m. here in New Zealand. I'll be up and taking notes, uh, as will my daughter, Heidi, who will join us on the podcast as well. Heidi also monitors the Apple scene very closely. But one of the reasons why I'm asking Heidi to be on this podcast is that often there are a lot of visuals on the screen that don't get described during the Apple keynotes because there's so much that Apple want to say that they often put up these slides that are not talked about at all in the event. 
And so Heidi will be taking particular care to monitor those slides that come up on the screen. When new hardware is announced, she'll also be able to tell us about the hardware and any visual issues that we're interested in. So it'll be great to have Heidi with us as well. I'll also be joined by Jeff Bishop, who has joined me on technology podcasts over the years. Jeff has also been beta testing iOS 10, as have all of us on the podcast. So we'll be talking a bit about that as well. It's an extraordinary Apple event in the sense that the one thing that people are talking about most regarding the Apple event is not a new feature that's being added, but something that's being taken away. You look at all the tech publications and the thing that's dominating it, that's dominating web-based forums, even of cited IT professionals, is this whole question of the headphone jack. This is something that if you read my blog, you know I'm particularly interested in as somebody who wears hearing aids. So for me, Earbuds of any kind are not an option because I wear hearing aids, so the new fancy lightning-based earpods that are rumoured are not going to work for me, nor are wireless solutions. And I think that some people in the blind community may find that this is a bigger deal than they're expecting because of the latency that often presents itself with voiceover and wireless solutions. Although I understand some work may be done on the latency in time for the iPhone 7 and that it may be even improving in iOS 10. But for many blind people who wear hearing aids, what they want to be able to do is to plug in directly to the headphone socket so they have a direct connection between their hearing aids and the device. I have a cable that I can just chop and change. I can plug it here into my mixer. I can plug it into the headphone jack. Now there is going to be, it appears, an adapter that plugs into the lightning port of the iPhone 7 to compensate for the lack of a headphone jack. The question is, will you be able to charge your device and do that at the same time? Because there are blind hearing aid wearers who want to be able to use voiceover when the device is charging for whom wireless solutions are not a viable option. And so there's a lot of, I guess, nervousness and tension. And it is true to say that it looks like the iPhone 7, unless you're a photographer, is going to be a fairly minimal release. So it may have minimal impact this year if people want to stick with their iPhone successes and maybe they'll just tell Apple, look, we, we really don't want to work without a headphone jack and maybe they will reverse it. There have been a lot of people who've said, well, this is just the way technology goes. Technology evolves. Apple has replaced older technology in the past and they've proven to be correct. And of course, that is true. Apple was one of the first, if not the first, to take floppy drives away. Then they started releasing Macs without optical drives. So they have had some success with pushing the market forward in the past. One of the things I think we have to be careful about with regards to what Apple is doing this time is that they are replacing what they're taking away with a proprietary connector. So there is some suggestion that the future of headphones will be a USB-C port. And that means that you'll have some sort of digital connection with your headphone accessories. And if that digital connection needs to contain a digital to analog converter, then fine. The issue here, though, is that it does not appear that the iPhone 7 is switching from Lightning to USB-C. If it were, there'd be uh, some more annoyed people because all of those Lightning accessories that only recently replaced the big 30-pin accessories would be obsolete as well. So by replacing a ubiquitous standard like the 3.5mm headphone jack with a Lightning port, it does raise some other questions of 
compatibility throughout the industry of any kind of new standard that emerged. And it's going to get quite cumbersome if you have to carry a bunch of adapters around or even potentially separate headphones because you've got a device that has a lightning port and a couple of devices that don't. What is pretty peculiar is that at this point, there is no lightning port in Apple's own Macs. So a lot of people now get the ear pods that come with the iPhone and they unplug them from their headphone jack and their iPhone and plug them into their computer and they keep on working. And when they've done their work, they switch them back again. Well, that will not be possible if the iPhone 7 goes uh, lightning, as appears to be the case, unless, of course, Apple starts selling some sort of clunky dongle that you can plug into your USB port so that you can have lightning headphones plug into your Mac somehow. So all sorts of questions to be answered. So I'll be watching the iPhone 7 event with a lot of trepidation. Normally, I'm excited about these iPhone events to see what Apple have in store, although these days there's not quite the same magic about these events partly because Steve Jobs has gone, but also because all the leaks in the supply chain mean that it's very hard for Apple to keep anything a secret anymore. So we pretty much know for the most part what's coming up in these events. It's been said, by the way, that the iPhone 7 headphone jack issue is so controversial that Apple has let this deliberately leak and I floated that possibility way back in January or February in my second blog post on the Mosin Consulting blog about the headphone jack issue. When people are looking at this from a public relations point of view, you can imagine them thinking, the one thing we don't want is the removal of a feature to overshadow what we do have in the iPhone 7. And it does look like, by all accounts, when you look at all the press reports, that what they have in the iPhone 7 is going to be fairly minimal. You've got an upgrade from the base storage, the 16 gigabyte phone will go away and at the same price point you'll have a 32 gig phone going all the way up at least in one of the models to 256 gigs if you need that much storage. The dual lens camera sounds like it could be of benefit to a certain type of user and it looks like that the dual lens camera may come on the 7 plus while optical image stabilization that was previously only available in the Plus models will come down to the iPhone 7. So there are some new things. The new Home button, which some people may have an issue with because it's going to be kind of flush with the screen, so they say, and touch sensitive. So there are some new things. But the thing that most people are talking about is this headphone jack thing, and it's a really extraordinary position for Apple to be in. So it's being said now that Apple has deliberately leaked this headphone jack issue to try and get it out of people's systems so that by the time the headphone jack announcement is official, people will be resigned to it. And maybe for many people that will work. For those of us for whom solutions may not be provided, it might not be that easy. So the key for me will be, is this adapter that Apple is going to ship in the box that goes from Lightning to 3.5? Will it also have some sort of pass-through port so that you can charge your phone at the same time? A number of us have been in touch and agitated on this issue because it is so important to the people that it affects. So now we just have to cross our fingers and see whether all of that lobbying and advocacy at a time of the design stage when it could have made a difference has actually made a difference. And Jeff Bishop, David Woodbridge, Heidi Mosen and I will be here to discuss all of these issues 
We're not going to dominate the whole thing with the headphone jack. There will be other things to talk about, potentially a new Apple Watch as well. But we will be covering all of these issues in a special edition of the Blindside podcast. Look for it a few hours after the Apple event occurs. People still talk about our Mushroom Stock live music festivals, where thanks to the magic of radio, we transported you to Funkers Field for great companionship and unbeatable live music. Due to popular demand, Mushroom Stock is back! Clear your calendar, stock your fridge, and prime your best speakers for Mushroom Stock 2016 on September 17. It's a 10-hour live music festival of artists from the 50s to the 80s. And since this is a virtual live music festival, things like acrimony and death are no barrier. So you'll hear live acts you thought never would or could perform again. Tickets are free and strictly limited, so secure yours right now before the best seats in the stadium are gone. MushroomFM.com slash MushroomStock 2016. And keep September 17 free for incredible live music and plenty of interactive Twitter fun with fun guys and fellow audience members. This is a Mushroom FM special event they'll be talking about for years. Mushroom Stock 2016. Book right now. MushroomFM.com slash MushroomStock 2016. Feel the need to sound off? Share your thoughts about this week's show by email. Send an audio file or write it down and email theblindside at mosin.org. Hi Jonathan, my name is EZ Cleghorn, and I wanted to respond to the very first episode of your Blindside podcast because I was highly offended at an assertion that was made by your featured guest who represented the International Braille Union or whatever it was. I don't remember. But the assumption and the outright statement was that it is impossible for someone to succeed in a workplace environment with only speech synthesizer technology, only your average screen reader. As an educator who is totally blind and works for one of the largest and most successful school systems in the state of Georgia, who does not have a single blind student and who has enormous responsibilities, I work with the largest marching band we have in the county. I work with the most successful choral program in the state. I work one-on-one with students in the transition out of high school and into the real world. That's one of the main things that I do. I meet with them on a one-on-one basis. I have to send emails every day. I have to maintain logistics for an organization consisting of over 200 people from time to time. I have to help with those things. And everything that I do is done completely and entirely without a dot of Braille. Now, I was completely literate at a very young age, at a college reading level at 10 or 11 years old. But I don't find it necessary, and I don't find it productive. And if if anything, I find it cumbersome. Now, the argument is always, what about spelling? Number one... If you don't know exactly how something is spelled, you can have your screen reader go character by character. Number two, it is ten times easier now than it has ever been before because you have something like Siri, and you can say a word and then go character by character with the rotor, and it will just spell the word out for you. It has never, ever, ever been simpler. And then, of course, you still have the traditional spell check and whatever. So I think it is entirely possible to succeed And I think it is entirely possible for a child to be educated without... Now, I am a proponent of having the choice. 
But the issue is, so many of these organizations, like the NFB, the ACB, tend to emphasize only Braille and make it very clear that in their minds that is the only way. If you don't want it, you should not feel from these organizations that are supposed to stand up for your rights and be advocates that you have to go a certain way. So, teach them, get them literate, or even try not. I think it could work without it, but I understand why some people would want to be taught from a young age. But then, get this assumption out of your head that there is only one way to go, and you have to learn it. There's a reason that it's declining, and it's because it's obsolete. It just is. JAWS and voiceover have completely changed my life. They have allowed me to have the job that I have to do the myriad of things that I do. And I am eternally grateful, and I have succeeded without any use of Braille since the day I graduated from high school. And if you have a view on that, you can record an audio file and attach it to a message to theblindside at mosin.org. That's theblindside at mosin.org. You can also write an email. If you do that, make sure you write it in letter to the editor's style, which makes it easy for us to read out. We'd be interested in further thoughts on that topic. It's time to hear from this week's featured guest on The Blind Side. Well, his voice is a familiar one to political junkies in Britain. Gary O'Donoghue has brought news from Westminster to people's homes, workplaces and cars, not just on the radio too, but on the television. So his face is also familiar to many Brits. And Gary O'Donoghue joins me from Washington, where he's based at the moment. Welcome to you, Gary. And you. Nice to hear you, Jonathan. You've been totally blind since the age of eight, right? Retinal detachment strikes again. Yes, um, I was born with pretty poor sight. I, uh, one of my eyes didn't really work at all, and it was removed when I was um, a very small baby. And then the other, the other eye wasn't so good, but it, it, I could have pretty useful sight, um, sort of during my early years. And I had a couple of times when the retina detachment. One particular time when I went over the handlebars of my bicycle um but eventually it detached again when i was eight and they decided at that time that it was sort of so damaged from the reattachment process that they'd done several times before that it was not really worth doing this before the days of laser surgery and all that kind of thing so um the consultant at moorfields in london um i think to, to call my mother in and said look you know we can keep fiddling around with this but actually it's time to concentrate on finding him the best education you can get for a blind person in this country and and stop messing around with trying to save a, a bit of failing sight and that education turned out to be at boarding schools specifically for blind people yes it did i mean i it's looking back on it now um, pretty much straight away, I started learning Braille. And then within a few months, I was packed off to a weekly boarding school in the southeast of England in Kent called Dorton House. And I think at the time, you know, it felt a bit like a punishment in a way, a bit a bit like being punished for, for losing your sight. Um, but actually, I think after the first few weeks, I, you know, children adapt, don't they? They adapt so quickly and so easily that I got used to it. And and from then on, I, I went to Worcester College for the Blind, which many people will know, now called New College Worcester. And, and that was more of a sort of half-termly boarding uh, process. So I was away for a lot longer. And it kind of, I mean, it, it did all sorts of bad things, I think, to you as an individual in terms of 
kind of a doggy dog type uh, atmosphere in, in in those places but it also it also created a uh, a lot of independence very young you know i was doing my own laundry when i was you know 15 or 16 so when i went off to university and these my contemporaries there were didn't know one end of a washing machine from another i had a minor advantage over some of them <laughs> at that stage <laughs> these days it's not done very often outside of Britain anyway to send kids to specialised schools for such a prolonged period. You sort of go there for pockets of concentrated learning. But it seems to me that Britain's taken a slightly different path in that a lot of these schools and colleges for the blind are still alive and well and thriving. Well, quite a lot have closed actually over the last 20, 30 years. And uh, a lot of uh, local authorities, a lot of local councils in Britain have also decided that they can or they can provide the kind of sort of mainstream, integrated, whatever you want to call it, education that they, they definitely couldn't before. Now, there's a debate over the quality of that education, the support they give. And of course, a lot of the special schools that remain are very, very expensive. And so local authorities, local councils don't want to pay you know, tens and tens of thousands of pounds uh, to send blind children out of their borough to to a boarding school. So, yes, there are some still existing, but they they fight for their survival nowadays in a way that they didn't didn't do before, and and they've had to sort of branch out and do a lot of what you might call outreach. So, when I Worcester College for the Blind, New College Worcester, which I was a governor of until quite recently was running sort of sort of revision classes for blind students in mainstream education during the Easter holidays before their public exams things like that and having to sort of have conferences is during the other holidays to to pay some of the bills so it, it is a it is a hand-to-mouth existence I think for a lot of the, the remain, remaining special schools in Britain but uh, the people who like them and the parents who like them are absolutely devoted to them and I think there's a you know we've we've had this debate for for many many years haven't we about mm. the value of special education and it, it definitely has its downsides but I, I I'm I'm pretty sure that I wouldn't have got the education I got um, in a mainstream setting at the time when I was losing my sight. Some of the facilities that they have at these schools are just absolutely incredible state of the art. I've been to some of them. They have studios that are, are comparable with yours at the BBC, Gary. You know, they're pretty well equipped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, they do. I mean, e- even when I was at school, we had a we had our own swimming pool. We had our own running track. We had our own uh, football pitch. We had, you know, pretty well equipped science labs music rooms i mean now nowadays at this uh, the school i was at they've got a big drama studio uh, they've got as, as you say recording studios as well to do um to do that kind of work as well so they are they are very well equipped and i think in many ways you know that's that's the way they can add value isn't it um if you've got a really good science lab which means that blind children can really get hands-on properly in a physics experiment or a biology experiment, then that's what's going to mark you out from from the kind of offering uh, a mainstream school can give you where you just may not, you may not get that same kind of attention or time to learn in a class of 30 or 35 that you do in a class of, of 8 or 10. 
it undisputedly worked for you because you got into Oxford. That's where you went and uh, studied at university. I did. Um, I went and read uh, philosophy and modern languages at Christchurch, Oxford, and um, I enjoyed my time there. I lived in Paris for a year as a student as well as part part of that. Very very lazy year in Paris, not doing very much, but kicking around with with um, some of my fellow students few 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 classes at the Sorbonne but not really very dedicated particularly um yeah and I had a I had a great time and I have to say I mean this is back in the the late 80s um so it was before kind of you know uh civil rights legislation for disabled people or anything like that in Britain and the university my experience of Oxford University was was first rate I mean they were very they were very accommodating they on the first day I was there, the carpenter, the college carpenter, came into my rooms and built me a whole set of new shelves that would fit Braille books because the shelves that were there were only for, for print books. I mean, the man came in and built Braille bookshelves. Uh, and they, they, the authorities were, were very clear, that a very understated way. They said, well, if there's something you need, come and tell us, otherwise we won't bother you. How were you doing your note-taking then? Because computers would have been starting oh. to emerge, but not really in the forefront at that point. Oh, Jonathan, it, I shiver. I shiver to remember it. There was a lot of um, getting readers to read stuff onto tape and then going back and taking notes in Braille. I would write out my essays in Braille and then transcribe them on an electric typewriter. I had an electric typewriter in those days. Um Towards the end of my time there, I got a Versa Braille that was bought yeah. for me by the college. A Versa Braille. Do you remember them? Yeah. The, did you get the original cassette one? No. Well, I saw one of those, but actually the one I got was the one that had the had the floppy disk. Oh, the you had the number two with the, with, the, with the sort of a cushiony yes. keys, a very spongy keys very on spongy them. Yeah, yeah. Very, very spongy. And um, I think I've still got some discs at home with stuff that I – I wrote on that. I mean, God knows whatever happened to to the unit, and it was a tank of a thing. You know, it was a big metal box, basically. But, you know, you were able to do basic editing, and you could connect it up to a matrix dot printer, which I had, and I could write something. Actually, I, from memory, I could write, you could write in grade 2 Braille, and I think it had – I think maybe it had a Duxbury translation in it or something, and you could print, it, print out your essay. So – I sort of I got to the the beginnings of computing. I had had quite a lot of experience of computing itself when I was at school because when I was um, uh, fifteen, we had uh, we had an Apple II um, at school, the first computer we had at school, and we I did a computing science O level at the time, and this is mid eighties, so it was really you know really at the beginning, and so I learnt. Uh, I mean, I'm not I'm not very very technical but we learned basic uh the, <laughs> yes. the, you know line 10 line 10 input a dollar yes um <laughs> and then in the sixth form i did a computing science a level and and we were taught by a very sort of forward thinking teacher called barry stockwell uh who's no longer with us very forward he used to work for icl the the, um, the computing company, he came in and he taught us computer science and also taught us Pascal, the language, the computer, uh, the the language Pascal. Yeah. And it was um, it was a structured language, unlike BASIC. So it demanded a good deal of rigor. So we would write out these algorithms beforehand, before we even started writing any code down. And, you know, I think it was one of the most formative 
intellectual experiences of my sort of school days because it forced you to think logically. It really forced you to work out what it is you're trying to do, work out what the steps are. I mean, sort of programming the different kinds of sorts that computers have to do. You know, we, I mean, we have to write projects on, you know, a program that would do a bubble sort or a, or a, I can't even name the, the remember the names of the other kinds <laughs> of sort that, that computers do when they go. And of course, these algorithms are still in, in play in, in computing languages. The, yes. the logic hasn't changed. But, but I suppose in those days, computers were sort of things that you did for a hobby and they were mathematical tools. And I don't think we really could foresee the game-changing nature of them that would come later. Yeah, well, it, I, it always I never forget. Um, it was Bill Gates, wasn't it, who once said, "Who would who need who would ever need more than six hundred six hundred and forty k?" Yeah, but yeah, but I but I so I I was sort of um, introduced them at an early age, but they weren't around really when I went to university. Not in as you say, not in any practical sense for word processing. That really came that really came a bit later. Certainly, no I, internet. Yes. Now, I hope you didn't make the mistake of going out with any reader because one of the pieces of advice I was given, I used readers too. I, I was at university in the 80s and uh, they told me that there were three genders, men, women and readers. And Because, you know, if you go out with a reader and then you fall out with the reader, you've completely then messed up trouble. your timetable. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that yeah. would be a bad, bad choice, I think. No, I didn't. I didn't do that. I had a couple yeah. of sort of very sort of venerable old ladies, sort of former... Um, oh, sort that's of, all right. Uh, sort of head teachers from local posh schools who were very, very grand and uh, very, 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 very kind, though. Very, very kind. A lot of people were, gave up a lot of time, a lot of, you know, hours on end to read all this rubbish that I was, had to read. And, you know, and tolerant when I would sort of doze off as well, you know. Did you participate a lot in the extracurricular stuff? Because Oxford is very famous for things like debating societies and, and drama, of course, and all those things. Did you get involved in that? Not a great deal. I did a bit with the Broadcasting Society there, which was um, a slightly half-hearted uh, affair, but we, we did a few talks and things and had a few little projects uh, like that. I didn't get involved in the Oxford Union, which is the Debating Society. It wasn't terribly interesting. That What I did do is um, <clears throat> sort of at the end, uh, during my, my the, the vacations in my second year, Easter and summer, and then in the vacation, long vacation before my final year, I started to do bits and pieces of work for the BBC, um, particularly for the the In Touch program, which a lot of your listeners will know, the program for visually impaired people on BBC Radio every week. And I would I would sort of sneak up to London when I really should have been working, just if I'd had an idea or I didn't done an interview or I was doing a little piece for them. Uh, and actually, when I was in France for my year as a student, I did quite a few pieces for them. In fact, the first piece I ever had broadcast was about audio description. Uh, and I interviewed August Coppola, the, the, the brother of Francis Ford Coppola. And I think his his film, it was Indiana Jones, I think, and the last whatever it was. And it was one of the very early films to have audio description. And I remember sitting on his the bed in his hotel room in Paris asking him about audio description and, you know, what it was. Because I hadn't even heard it then. I'd heard a little example of it on his film and talking about the possibilities and, and what it might end up doing and what it might end up sounding like and the sort of theory behind it. And that's, you know, that's going back now 20, 26 years. So we've come on a long way. It sounds like you had your heart set on working on the radio then. 
Yeah, I think it kind. I think I slightly fell into it. Um, I mean, as all these things, uh, my my first sort of attention was grabbed by it. I mean, I was always a listener, always a listener in, in the way that blind people grow up being listeners, big time, um, and critical listeners. You know, when you get to an age in your teens, you start to listen more critically. Writing into um, the feedback program <laughs> from Tunbridge Wells. Yep. Uh, my proudest moment was having a letter read out on, P- on the PM program. Oh, no, the PM program, student. that's all right. The, f- the feedback <laughs> program just cracks me up because uh, oh, it's yes. just uh, like, I, what other network in the world would have broadcast a half an hour of people <laughs> whinging on about their content? It's just <laughs> yes. absolutely yes. brilliant. Only on the BBC. It's I never right. miss Did it. you get that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely right. It's like kind of shooting yourself in the foot on a weekly basis. Yes, it's I mean, all the marketing funny. experts would say, oh, no, this is a branding disaster. You know, you're tarnishing <laughs> yes. your own brand. But they, you know, every week they come on on a Friday and they have half an hour of people complaining about them. It's just... <laughs> It's absolutely true. Yes. Absolutely true. Well, when you but, when you decided to go into the BBC, did, mm. were they receptive to the idea? Did you have some some barriers to overcome? Do you know, it was a real mixed bag because um, I mean, I've talked about the In Touch program and the the legendary producer of the In Touch program in those days, Thena Heschel, who was a a real old school BBC producer, had been there, you know, since the sixties and was a you know was a genius with with programs and sound now, but was also absolutely dedicated on a higher program to giving blind people a, a shot at, at doing it because it it had this um it had had this record since its inception that it you know it had been largely presented and largely the reporters on it were all blind it was absolutely unheard of yeah um, so that that was a, a big start. I did also, but I was I was more interested in news particularly. So I applied a couple of times at the end of my university career, uh, career for something that was called the news trainee scheme, and I was turned down twice by the uh, by those uh, those people at the time, despite having had sort of two summers worth of experience. I had demonstrated, I think, sufficient um, application to. To get it, and I never forget, and it's something that stayed with me to this day. That the head of journalist training at the BBC at the time, you know, sat me down. And he said, "I'm sorry, I don't think a, a blind person can be a reporter." So, um, I and they could him. say that then, right? Because I mean, if you <laughs> oh, said yeah. that now, oh, yeah. you you'd be uh, discriminating under some legislation Abs- or other. But of course, they absolutely. could say it then. Yeah, you could. You could absolutely not give someone an opportunity or a job or a training course. Uh, on the basis of, of their disability, and you could say it to their face, absolutely. But in a way, that gives you a chance to know what you're dealing with, doesn't it? I mean, you can come back yes. with a with a with a rejoinder, whereas if the discrimination is being swept under the carpet and they give you some sort of excuse, you've got nothing to work with. I think that's right, and I think that's why, and I think that's that's the big challenge nowadays. For I mean, you know, I'm quite long in the tooth, but certainly for people starting out now the world has become much more sophisticated i'm not sure it's necessarily become much more understanding or receptive but it has become much more sophisticated at as you say um uh concealing i suppose some of the more negative attitudes and i think that's why you've got to find strategies to move around if you if it you know if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck and 
you know it probably is a duck so if you come across that stuff i think you have to find strategies to sidestep it uh, if you can because that's the best thing work around people who don't who don't get it find people who do get it you know put yourself in the position where you're working with or two people who do get it and you know and then there's a big question about what you do when someone stands in the way you know who who you really can't ignore I mean that's a very 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 difficult one for us all isn't it I mean yes, I'm indeed. sure we've all we've all come up against that over over the years so you got turned down initially how did you get that lucky break Ah well, um, what I did was uh, I mean I, I, I applied twice. I got to, <laughs> I was a real sucker for punishment. Um, what I then did is I I sort of carried on doing a little bit of freelance work that I was straight after my exams and and then uh, in the same department where the In Touch program was, there's a a program called uh, You and Yours, which is like a consumer program, and uh, and I was hanging around there. And I think I did a little couple of pieces for them into as a freelance and then they said oh would you like you know there's we can we need some you know we've got some space to want a three-month contract i did that and then i got offered a, a slightly longer contract down at westminster working on today in parliament which is the sort of parliament uh, program of record for parliament and it sort of went on from then and there was a general election just coming up the 92 general election was just around the corner and i started doing a lot of politics for uh, BBC local radio so we had a sort of central desk in Westminster that supplied material for the BBC local radio stations around the country and the election was very busy and I did you know got taken on for that period of time and then eventually I got a job and 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 it started from there but but yeah I was you know I I was lucky in the sense that uh when once I'd sidestepped that initial rejection you know I did come across people who were prepared to take a chance and they knew nothing about whether it would work or not. I mean, they really were taking a chance. You know, there were people who are still in my mind from those days who took a risk, took a risk with their own reputations to give me a chance and, and took a risk with the, you know, with having, they could have ended up with someone on their hands who didn't, you know, was a, was a more of a burden than anything else. And, you know, you're always eternally grateful for those people who, who do take a chance like that with you. So that's quite a good story because you effectively bypassed the the normal channels, as it were, to become a, a trainee journalist, and you got in through the side door, more or less. The weird thing is that after the after the general election in '92, they had a round because there's always a shake up after general elections and things. They had a round of of, of uh, hiring at Westminster in the in the department I was in, <clears throat> and I got a job as a senior broadcast journalist at the age of 23 when the people who I would have been on the training course were coming through for their two-month little stints on the desk, and I was telling them what to do at that stage. So that was the, uh, the irony of it, that actually the, the sidestep actually became a shortcut. But you must have instilled some confidence in those people for them to give you that break i mean clearly you're very competent at what you do but it's also i suppose a matter of handling your blindness perhaps putting people at ease and aren't being prepared to answer any questions they might have about how you would get a particular task done i think that's right i mean i i made a point every time i went in for a a job interview in the bbc when i was moving around i made a point of of at the end saying to them look you know, let's talk about this thing because, you know, some of the time they wouldn't want to and they, they felt, you know, they 
you could detect an unease or, you know, whether it was an unease or whether they really didn't think there was a problem. But I doubt it. I, doubt, I suspect it was an unease. And I would get, try and give them license to ask those questions, no matter how stupid the questions, you know, because it is true that it's quite difficult for sighted people to imagine what it is to be blind. And we know when they try to do it, they imagine all the wrong things, don't they? Um, and, you know, you cannot, you cannot, or you could only really, in a very general sense, simulate it because making it, you know, putting a blindfold on a sighted person makes them absolutely useless, doesn't it? I mean, really useless. Yeah. <laughs> um, they, they can barely put one foot in front of the other. So I, I would try and invite that. I mean, it, it's it's an attitude of mine, I think, that's changed as I've got older because I think... I think in those days I was, I would, uh, when there were, you know, difficulties, I was much less confident about, I, I wanted them to go away much more quickly. Nowadays, those, 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 those attitudinal problems, they make me angrier than they used to, I think. I'm not sure why that is, but they do. They make me angrier. And I, and I think, you know, you can't, you don't do it all the time because, what would happen then? But I think when they pop up and when they're when they're a problem, then they have to be called out. I think. Hmm. I mean, you should be entitled to some degree of recognition for uh, what you've achieved in some respect. So you would hope that some of those attitudinal problems would now be behind you. Yes, I wonder. I wonder about that. I mean, I I wonder about other blind people in in other in, in other professions whether they. Because you're right, you you do have a sort of you do have a sense in which you think you have a track record, and that speaks for itself in some ways. But I do wonder whether, you know, whether blind people, um, whether they have to sort of keep on. I mean, everyone has to keep on proving themselves, right? You know, today is a new day and all that. But I wonder, I wonder whether whether uh, blind people have to do that more, even after a quite a long time. I'm I'm not sure. I suspect it. I suspect they do. Um, because you know people are people are skeptical and 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 sometimes you come across people who who just don't seem to think that the the you know it's difficult to know what goes on in their mind because sometimes you detect a sense in which they think maybe the the track record is not really what it is or what it seems or somehow you know it was done for you or mm. you didn't really do it i mean I, i'm i'm speculating wildly but there are times where you come across and i've come across people not a lot to be fair but you come across people who are still incredulous even if you have got 20 years under your belt <laughs> yes i know you've been in different divisions of the bbc in my case in radio i worked in a number of different commercial radio stations and for me mm. the issue was always the operations guy the person who mm. and, and it was a guy in those days that the, the person mm. whose job it was to maintain the equipment and make mm. sure that it functioned and they were saying oh there's no way you know you may have you may have done all these other wonderful things in other radio stations but there's no mm. way you could work our gear <laughs> and it was like starting from square one every time and it can be demoralizing when you have to go through it often enough it's and it's very tiring isn't it yeah it is it's tiring, very very yeah. tiring because you're trying yeah. to do all you're trying to do is your thing right all you're trying to do is your thing um and you get another layer you know and the thing is often quite demanding i mean you know when you do a radio show it takes a lot out of you anyway right yes um but having to sort of 
I don't know, manage that stuff on top is is enormously tiring sometimes. I tell you what I think is I, I have noticed, and as I, I say, I don't think I'm particularly technically minded, um, but I think I have become much more technically minded than I would have been if I could see. And I think that's because over the years it's paid off, you know, to be one's own computer support, for example, because that's really the only way you can solve problems very, very quickly. You know, we all, it would be lovely if, you know, a com- corporate computer support really understood what JAWS was or what voiceover was and, you know, could troubleshoot it for you. Do you think that's ever really going to be as effective as becoming an expert? yourself i don't think it is right i think we you and i were probably lucky that we were around in the dos days because that encouraged you that, to get under the hood a lot more getting yes. to a command prompt and knowing things and yes. so it does help yes. you to get out of a bind to know how stuff works absolutely yeah absolutely you are a very fluent braille reader and i listen to you reading your pieces and i think yeah there's a there's a fluent braille reader going on there D- does that come naturally to you or have you consciously worked on your braille reading skills mindful that you need to use them to read on air at a a fluent level i wish i had been that dedicated i was never that fast a braille braille reader at school i mean i was pretty pretty average in the middle um but i have continued to and i think a lot of people stop using braille or they stopped using braille after school but i never did because i always thought it was absolutely central to the the work of anyone in in broadcasting or television radio and i just i i just don't know how i do it without it and and i think i mean one of the advantages i have with my braille reading is that i'm usually reading something i've written so you, hopefully you're usually a bit more fluent with something you've actually written yes. yourself and i'm often reading things that are not very long so you know if i do a, a little voice piece for the the news bulletin that's going to be a maximum 50 seconds probably um and then a, even a television script is probably going to be even less actually with all the bits and pieces in <clears throat> in between so i've made a conscious effort but i've also um used braille displays right throughout my my professional career um and i mean i've i, I think that's probably i think my, my braille has also improved in recent years particularly because i've started reading books a bit more in braille thanks to you know things like the kindle app and ibooks and, and things like that so i've started to to use braille a bit more for pleasure than than i was doing for the last couple of decades and i think that's also maybe a bit more fluent recently but i mean i think you know it's absolutely crucial and and it's you know we all know the problems with braille and and uh, the numbers of people that that don't use it but i'm i'm very hopeful that the the whole kind of uh, braille display revolution and the, these new cheap displays that are cheaper displays that are coming out will actually you know start to to expand the numbers of children particularly who are using it so take me through the tricks of the trade here so you would do a pre-read before you record is that what you would do a read read it out loud first before you do a take that also depends i mean i can let me tell you about my day today so today i uh uh, Donald Trump was doing a big speech in in Detroit. Um, now I was I'm here in Washington. We didn't go, and so that was at noon here <clears throat> local, and he was late starting. 
So he started about twenty past, twenty five past, and the 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 World Service who was who were keyed on it, they wanted a a quick a piece for their bulletin at one o'clock. So I'd had a little, we had a little sort of a few extracts of the speech beforehand sent round um, by the campaign, but he started speaking, and while he was speaking, I was sort of taking notes, and but also kind of compose, starting to compose my my piece you know which was 45 seconds long uh and the introduction to while i was listening to him so i was sort of writing notes in one window flipping over to another window writing a bit more of my piece and and i think i finished i mean he was still speaking and i think i finished writing this news piece at probably seven or eight minutes to one and so what i then did is i printed it on a on a braille printer which i have in my new in the newsroom and I took that through to the studio. I read it through once before I then connected to London. And then at about 5-2, uh, just after, I then read it out down the line to them. They record it and then they put it into the news bulletin. I have done live inserts into news bulletins before on the Radio 4, 6 o'clock news at home. That is scary. I have to tell you, that is really scary yeah. because it's meant to, the whole the whole point about it is a built bulleted. It's meant to be word perfect, and you know, you know. I mean, people do fluff it a bit, but you couldn't fluff it badly; otherwise, it'd be a disaster. Yeah, but so five minutes ten, before puts, the bulletin—that's yeah. tight, man. That, that's that's very yeah, tight that's, for the person at the other normal. end. That's pretty normal because wow. they can top and top and tail it digitally. You know, it doesn't take them a second to to top and tail it, and then copy it into a page in the running order and then it's there really in the playout system so um yeah so they're, they're used to that for sure for sure you worked on bbc radio for a long time you still do of course but uh, you were on the today program you were with the world mm. service you've also been on bbc tv and i'm very curious to find out the backstory behind this did you as a blind person have serious misgivings about being a part of what is clearly a visual medium that we can't consume and can't understand in its entirety and was there some skepticism among people at the bbc about you being on tv uh i've always been i mean i i, I did some television really from very early on i did uh, while i was uh working in mainstream news um the, the, the BBC started to move over to what it, uh, those, in those days it called bi-media reporters. So people that could do both radio and television. This is before, it's still before, you know, the BBC website was in existence. So now we're into tri-media. Um, so I was, I was always very keen and I, I used to do um, some specialist stuff as well for a, a disability magazine program the BBC used to have called uh, From the Edge. Um, so I learned some, I, I, I learned some television skills in a place where, you know, it was okay to be disabled. And so when I started to do television news, I actually was pretty pretty relaxed about it. I'll tell you a couple of the things I, I found interesting. Um, you know, was the, the, the internal debate in my own head about how much, how much you want, you know, how much... You don't want to cover up your disability on television or your blindness, but you also don't want it to be a distraction so they don't hear and think about what you're saying. And obviously that's a bit of a tension. And I think what's happened over the years with me, because I'm, you know, I've done quite a lot over really over the last 10 or 12 years, is that you know, I suspect most people that watch BBC News do know that I can't see. 
And so now it's no longer an issue because they've all that's already factored into their understanding. But I think, uh, you know, at the outset there was there was a little period where it was probably you know they were thinking what's going on there, you know, because some often when you're doing what we call like a a, a DTL or down the line or a two way. It's just you standing, you know, outside a building somewhere or wherever you are, just standing and talking to the presenter, you know, like a like an interview, like you and I are talking now, and and effectively all you see usually when it's a reporter being interviewed like that, you're only really seeing his sort of midriff upwards, you know. So there's you're not even if I had a cane in my hand, you wouldn't really see it. Um, so I think you know, and of course if you can't see, then you're, you're looking into the camera of course you are but you're not looking into this camera in the same way as a sighted person does you might drift slightly uh, and it, it becomes pretty obvious i think that you're a blind person after after a while and so there was a there was a, a debate in my head about what to do about that now i'm very i'm very careful when i'm doing lives uh, uh what we call lives now um especially when i'm with a cameraman i haven't worked with before of making sure i know where he is you know checking a minute before we go on air checking 30 seconds before i go on air you know some cameramen sort of stand off to the side and say yeah i'm over here and i said well that's no good you need to stand behind the <laughs> viewfinder <laughs> so you know i have to sort of explain it to them why, why i'm asking it um but i i'm i'm very i'm very careful about that because I, I don't want it to be a distraction the thing i the thing that was interesting the thing I, I found it hard to get people to engage with as a debate was when i wanted to read something in vision on air so sometimes you get a you know a couple of quotes from a statement or something like and you want to read it out and um, and i wanted to you know i wanted to ask people how, how do you think we should do this how do you frame it because if you frame it in the normal way that they would do for a reporter he'd hold a piece of paper up almost in front not entirely in front of his face or her face but almost up so that the viewer could see he had a piece of paper if you're standing up and reading braille then you know typically you'd hold it against yourself and reading. that would be below the normal the normal kind of shot the right. frame of a normal shot people would sort of see his hands moving what's he doing <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, but i found it very difficult to get people to engage in, in that discussion and, and i was never quite sure why so i just sort of did my own thing and i would say to cameron and look make sure you can see what i'm doing you know just that's quite a positive thing that, that that viewers are seeing somebody a, a yes. competent capable blind yeah. guy reading braille on the telly yes yeah. yeah no i think i think it is i mean you know we all do you know we're just chipping away aren't we we're just chipping away as much as we can as individuals well, um, that very nicely segues into my next question, actually. You're one of a number of blind people from the UK that I'm aware of who are working in the media. And, of course, mm. the UK has also had a blind home secretary. Mm. And I'm wondering whether having a number of blind people in very public roles makes any kind of difference to the way that blind people in general are perceived in the UK difficult isn't it difficult to gauge um that that kind of impact i mean <clears throat> i think it i think it can't not have some kind of some some kind of impact to see disabled people regularly uh you know on news bulletins news programs i i, I can't think that it doesn't i mean the one thing i i would point to i mean my daughter um lucy who's 14 years old goodness yeah, so she generation. i remember when she was <laughs> much younger than that <laughs> yeah she, she's grown up very fast yeah. um but you know her and her friends 
are really just not not very phased or not in any sense phased in the same way as people used to be by by difference um and i think that that does tell you something about um about the way things have changed you know they have grown up with and this is one of the upsides of, of mainstream they've grown up with people who have you know particular needs in in their schools they've just worked alongside them you know well, is it perfect no it's not but there just doesn't seem to be the the same kind of uh focus on difference that there used to be and that that i'm i mean i'm encouraged by and i think you know despite all the difficulties one might have just keeping on doing it you know hopefully has some kind of some kind of impact i mean it's still very frustrating at times we know it is and and you know people can treat you like a a child you know i can walk out the door here and you know you could be treated infantilized as i call it immediately by by someone or other but you know i think you just have to keep doing and you have to sort of you have to sort of insulate yourself a little bit without becoming too thick skin don't you you have to sort of let try and let as much of that the, the negativity sort of wash over because you can't take it all on delicate balancing act though right because yeah, i mean you've got to stand up for your rights while not letting it completely get to you and change you in a negative way it is and that, you know i think i certainly feel sometimes that you know there is a risk of it of it making you someone that you're not you know having to to fight your corner on something that it does turn you into someone that you don't feel you are um because you can't get through or you can't make yourself understood um but yes and i but but it, i think you have to try and protect yourself against that because uh, you you know you could you could go mad couldn't you you could go mad if you kept analyzing too much day in day out mm. some some of it you kind of have to let go. most of it you probably have to let go i would say do you get stopped in the streets in Britain by random people who want to comment on your, your work on, on the TV? Well, do you know, that's interesting you should say that because before I came out to Washington, um, I was the chief political correspondent at, uh, at home. Um, and I got stopped most days in the street. I got stopped most days. Now, I don't think that's because I was on particularly much or on, you know, there are many more people who are on much more than me. But of course, you're you're so recognisable, on your you know you're so well, so different. You are different to most of the the people they normally see on television. You so yeah, I got stopped a lot, and you know it was, it was often by surprising, you know, types of people, young people. You sort of, you know, I remember in West London where I was living at the time, sort of young black men stopping me in the street, saying, "Great, you know, nice to see you on the television, bro," you know, and. And you think, God, do you, why do you watch the news channel? I thought your demographic, you young people, didn't watch the news channel. But yeah, yeah, people and people, they seemed to think it was, you know, it was a good thing in some sense or other. Now, of course, the people who, who thought you were rubbish probably didn't stop you. So there's probably a good number of those out there as well. But it, I have to say, it, it did make it worth it. it. It did make it even more worth it to have that that little bit of understanding that people kind of they thought they thought you were doing something over and beyond over and above just your job they thought you were having an impact 
did you find that you and David Blunkett, who, for those who don't know, was the uh, totally blind home secretary, a guide dog user, uh, did you have any kind of particular bond as to blind people? I guess sometimes in an adversarial kind of uh, position because he's the politician and you're trying to extract information. Well, yeah, I mean, there is there is that. And, a kind, and of course, um, I remember, you know, doing... Actually, it wasn't him. It was another politician called Jack Ashley, who was a who was a deaf pol- deaf liberal MP in Britain. And I remember when I was on the Today program as a reporter doing an interview with him. And I can't even remember what the subject was, but it was nothing to do with disability. And uh, a columnist in the Sunday Times wrote a piece on, on the following Sunday, saying, "You know, note this moment. You know, at ten past eight or whatever it was on Thursday morning." You know, you didn't, you don't know this, but a blind reporter was interviewing a deaf politician about nothing to do with disability. Yes, uh, you know, and it, it, you kind of thought to yourself, well, yeah, he has a point. He has a point that that's what you know. And David Blunkett, you know, he he was very he was very careful about um, sort of hiving off disability issues. He didn't avoid disability issues, but he was very very careful at making it making it clear that he wasn't going to get drawn into that debate while he was doing these other other jobs and he was he was very careful about it and you know i mean you don't you don't get to be home secretary you know at a time sort of post 911 um if um, if people don't think you're competent no he was very careful not to be pigeonholed and that probably uh, stood him in good stead I am interested in his career because having read a couple of books that he's written over the years, he didn't appear to make a lot of use of the technology that people like you and I are using. It sounds like a lot of the material that he was reading, and there was an awful lot of it as Home Secretary, he was actually consuming on cassettes that had been read to him by staff members rather than doing any kind of electronic tricks. It's a generational problem. Um, no question about that. I mean, I remember talking to him about this, and and you know, he often had to go to the House of Commons and make make a sort of lengthy statement at three thirty in the afternoon, and then take questions for an hour from MPs. Sometimes, you know, long detailed questions, um, and you know, they would they would print out this statement in Braille eventually five minutes before he stood up to deliver it. And uh, it, I think it was a real struggle for him. And then he had no means of jotting down notes in the chamber because he used, you know, he used Braille. I don't, he certainly didn't use any electronic devices or note takers. And yeah. it's a generational <laughs> issue. It's a generational Matt, I can issue. tell you, I've worked for various companies over the years who would have given anything to put one yeah. of their products in his, in his hand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I talked to him about it and, you know, tried to encourage him towards it, but you know he had his systems and as i say he was probably probably 15 20 years just you know just missed it by 15 or 20 years in terms of being able to get hold of that stuff and have the patience to learn it i suppose yeah but yet he succeeded in the role and i don't think yes, that there did. has ever been a more senior blind politician in the world has there than david blunkett that would be certainly my my sense of it i mean i can't think of of anyone in certainly in in the sort of you know western democracies that's got anywhere that near. i mean we had um <clears throat> we had a chap here in in america who was uh 
Uh, now, was he was he governor of New? No, he was. Yeah, he was the governor of New York. He succeeded uh, the previous governor in somewhat interesting circumstances. I think. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he wasn't he wasn't for long, but uh, I suppose he would be he would be up there in terms of seniority. Yes, but, that's true. But, but yeah, but but in terms of you know, I mean, he David Blanket was in the cabinet for for a very long time. Well, you're in Washington now, and you couldn't have picked a better time to be there mm. if you're into politics because mm. it's an extraordinary political season. And I'm not sure how much you feel comfortable sort of expressing an opinion about the scene that you're in. But I do have to ask the question, mm. given all of the reaction that has taken place and continues to take place regarding Donald Trump and the incident where he appeared to mock a mm. reporter with a disability, do you feel any sense of trepidation reporting <laughs> on Donald Trump and being at Donald Trump rallies? No, I don't really, to be honest. And and to be fair to, to our friend from the New York Times who was mocked, uh, I thought he dealt with it very, very, you know, very, very astutely. I mean, there were plenty of other people being outraged on his behalf, but he was very, very um, sort of... Uh, calm and uh careful about it and i take my hat off to him for that no i i i you know i wouldn't bother me in the slightest if donald trump take, took the mickey out of my blindness i've i've um i've never interviewed uh him i have been at a, a press conference where i asked him uh a question but um he didn't seem to notice that i couldn't see him and you know i mean it, I, I don't know if you you'd feel this. If anyone openly mocked me as a blind person, I'd find that enormously funny because it would be <laughs> it was so so old fashioned, wouldn't it? Kind of out of the ordinary. It would be it would be comic. It'd actually be quite a good career move because you'd get a lot of yeah. You'd probably get yourself on CNN and um, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, maybe places. that's. Maybe that's it then. Maybe yeah. that's the way forward. <laughs> how, how do you think it's looking? I mean, it's an extraordinary campaign. I, I can't recall a campaign where you have two candidates at this point in an electoral cycle who are so disliked, who have such high unfavorability mm. ratings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the big one. I mean, uh, there was a couple of um, tracking polls today um, have Donald Trump's own unfavorability at 70 and Hillary's at 55. So, you know, it's... It's a, it's a, it's an extraordinary race in so many ways. I mean, so many ways, and and not just not just happening in America here. This kind of turning over the tables, um, wrecking the joint, happening elsewhere, of course, as well. And we have we've had Brexit and Britain, other parts of Europe where the kind of the natural order and the sort of received thinking is all being turned over. And, and that means, I think, that you'd be a mug if you predicted it at this stage. You'd be an absolute mug. We were all wrong, 10 times, 100 times wrong over the whole primary process and how long Donald Trump wouldn't last and all kind of, that kind of thing. So I've kind of stopped predicting because it's pointless. <laughs> Are you reading Nate Silver religiously? Oh, yes. He's yes. interesting, isn't he? He's yeah. very good. And, and there's Nate Cohn as well, who I think is also very good. And their their demographic stuff, I think, you know, in, in a world and the political world is one of those ones where, you know, facts are a bit slippery at times. You know, the the distinction between fact and fiction interpretation is is ever changing. To get hold of some of the, you know, get yourself, you know, across some of the demographics of 
of what happens is i think is one of the things you can sort of ground yourself in you know it is you know you can you can george w bush got 42 percent of the hispanic vote here uh, when he uh, became president and donald trump is polling in the teens in the, in the hispanic vote at the moment so you know there's a problem there you know there's a big problem he's polling in single figures among african americans you know there's a problem there so that that allows you to sort of ground your ground your commentary in in something that 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 has some you know some proper basis to it um because you know uh it's very easy i think in america when you're doing politics to sort of get into the get into the kind of the groove that the cable channels have here and, you know you watch cable news here for half an hour and you get a headache they're yelling at one another so loud and so <laughs> so persistently it's kind of i never knew the meaning of the word blowhard until i watched you know <laughs> extended periods of of cable television in the us um but yeah so there are there are some facts you can you can hold on to in this race, but it is a it is an enormously uncertain process, and not least as you say because of these unfavorabilities. What does that do to turnout? You know, do all these people that that might might tip it one way or the other? Do they stay at home? Is there a whole bunch of people like in Britain in the in the Brexit? A whole bunch of people like three million people in Britain who don't normally vote, who came out and voted and changed the weather. You know, yeah. could that happen here? You know, and then there's also the libertarian factor and the green factor, and whether those two will cancel each other out, or whether someone like Gary Johnson in particular appears to be getting a bit of traction, and whether that will really affect the Trump vote, and that could do to Donald Trump what uh, Ross Perot did to George Bush the first in 1992. So there's all sorts of little permutations to consider there. There are, and there's there's another guy who's um, entering the race, uh, yeah. former CIA agent. Um, Who's um, uh, is he is from Utah? He's um, from the Latter Day Saints uh, uh, Church, and uh, you know, if he runs, you know, it's, it suddenly means it opens the door for the Democrats in places like Utah that they wouldn't have dreamed of winning right. before, because you split the vote, and anything can happen when you start splitting the vote. Where will you be on election night? Do you know that yet? I wish I knew. I don't. Mm. I don't. Would you, do you to expect to be assigned one of the campaigns, or might you be in Washington? I mean, it's a pretty dead zone in Washington on election night, as a rule. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've got quite a lot to happen before then. We've got the big debates. Yes. So I hope to do do some of those, and and I hope to be on the road a bit during the the general election. And as for the, I mean, it's, it's very difficult for the BBC in in US elections because, you know, uh, I mean, we we obviously we 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 have to battle for for you know audiences particularly here in the US where you know politicians here aren't aren't particularly interested in in talking to us because um you know because we don't really you know don't don't have a lot of their votes you're not watching. talking to voters yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> so so that's a bit tricky but um but yeah we'll, but we we will have a we will have a big effort here on election night uh, and hopefully if not explaining it to the american viewers explaining to the rest of the world just before we go, tell me about any differences you've noticed in terms of being a blind person in the United States versus being a blind person in Britain. Yeah, I've thought about this a little bit, and it's you know it's tempting, isn't it, to generalise and and you know, and all I have is anecdotal um, evidence. Really, the one thing that struck me, and this may be a Washington thing more than a, an American thing, the one thing that struck me 
is that it's not you don't get offered as much help in the street as you do in the UK. <clears throat> but you know, you can stand at a crossing here, and of course, uh, many more American crossings don't have don't have any kind of audible signal. Yeah. Most you know, they just have this sort of the countdown uh, in seconds somewhere on a pole somewhere. And people often sort of here in DC, at any rate, they sort of stream by. Um, and I, I was I was perplexed by that. I was I was I would have thought it would be the other way around. Whereas in London, you know, you get offered help all the time. Now it may be because London's much more populous, and actually DC is quite small, and there are fewer people around. And it may, it may be that. So I may I may be it, there may not be anything in it. But I did did think that was a a kind of interesting difference the sidewalks here are just terrible jonathan they they are they they have these things in in dc that are sort of flower beds in the middle of the sidewalks and they have they are surrounded by shin-high metal fencing and uh they seem to have sharpened them in my view i think they've actually sharpened <laughs> maybe your shins uh, are just becoming a little bit uh frayed yeah <laughs> well i think there is that so i sort of had a sort of bit of a mobility wobble when i first moved here because well, i moved in the winter when it was ice and snow and you know what they say about snow being blind man's fog and all that mm. um but um but so i find i found that and it may be because i'm getting a bit older that my mobility is you know falling apart a little bit but i did find it a little bit hard to get around and that was partly to do with you know not not getting assistance at, at crossings because you do really have to obey the rules here because jaywalking is is frowned upon um in america in a way that in europe you can just you know make a dash for it and and cars will will be forgiving but here they you know they they tend to obey the line i tell you what they do what is true here um more so than it is in london cyclists here don't obey the rules um in a way they do in London, cyclists are on the pay on the sidewalks here all the time, going through red lights. Um, really, really poor, I think. Really poor. On the flip side, a lot more braille on hotel room doors. A lot more braille everywhere in the states, don't you think? Yeah, a lot of braille, and that's good. I mean, I you know most of the time, and I've spent a lot of time in hotels in the last eighteen months or so, uh, and yeah, often often braille on the door um or next to the door um lift you know lift braille is pretty universal i think lift braille is pretty universal in yeah, britain yeah. now um always the problem i mean people will say it's marvelous isn't it but it takes a while you're standing in the lift looking for the <laughs> buttons and then looking for the layout because the layout's always different um so sometimes you don't, don't always get used to get an opportunity to use it because someone hops in and and panics because they see you groping around and does it anyway but um but yeah a lot of lot of braille um around there's some there's some challenges i think with with transportation i mean the the on the on the metro here in washington the, the they don't have automated announcements of the stations you're going through the drivers do tend to say the names but they say them in a kind of way that well, I think it's mumble. I'm a foreigner. I can't yeah. hear a word they're saying. Yeah. And I'm sure that's, I'm sure if I was a, a local, I'd be understand what they're saying, but I definitely can't understand what they're saying when they tell, when they announce the name of the station. So, a bit behind in, in that regard. But I mean, there is, there are some, some marvelous aspects to, to living in America. I mean, the, the, the availability of, of audio books through the Bard um, system. You know, the NFB Newsline, I mean, I rely on that day in, day out, the NFB Newsline service to, to read newspapers. 
um i mean that's that's really really first rate so um so there's definitely definitely some upsides as well it's been a real pleasure to uh, talk with you and congratulations on all that you've achieved and uh, we'll look forward to your reports from what is an absolutely riveting election cycle i really appreciate your time Good to talk to you, Jonathan. Good to talk to you. David Woodbridge, Jeff Bishop, Heidi Mosin and I look forward to bringing you the next edition of the Blind Side podcast as we wrap the Apple event on September the 7th. A reminder that Mosin Consulting is beavering away, beavering away is what we're doing, on two updates to accommodate that event. One is the brand new book, iOS 10 Without the Eye, and you can pre-order that book now at mosin.org slash iOS 10. That's mosin.org slash iOS iOS 10, all that's new in that operating system from a blindness perspective. There is also a substantial update coming out to the Apple TV fourth generation book. And after nearly a year of writing updates to this book, I finally came up with a decent title for the jolly thing. It's now called The Apple of Your Eye using Apple TV fourth generation with voiceover. If I wasn't doing the low-carb lifestyle, I'd award myself a big dollop of ice cream for that. So we'll tell you more about that soon. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening to The Blind Side. We'll catch you after the Apple event. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.